I'm here to tell you all about Advisor 3.0 Change Agents. The must attend conference for financial planners is happening in London on 18th of May 2023. Sizzling keynote speakers include Baroness Karen Brady, CBE, and the legend that is Seth Godin, plus Ola Abdul and Sean Hegarty. Co-hosted by Abraham Okasanya and Robin Wigglesworth, guests can enjoy an insightful interactive panels, debates, networking, Q&A sessions, and so, so much more. Grab them now at www.timeline.co forward slash advisor 3.0. You're listening to Retirementals. Good afternoon, good day, wherever you are, and welcome to Retirementals. I want to have a conversation with you uh, as a financial advisor, financial professional. Um, so you're a financial advisor. You've built an incredible practice, an incredible business. You're proud of the work that you do for your clients and, you know, you look after your staff. Uh, you've, um, you know, maybe you've even hit important milestones, um, half a million pound revenue, may a million pounds, maybe even more, uh, as a, as, as a business and you're getting on a bit, you know, you're in your fifties, uh, and approaching, uh, sixties and you're starting to think about, um, your, your own retirement. After all, you spend a lot of time planning and helping clients um, enjoy retirement. And so you're starting to think about what the future might look like for you. As much as you like and love this profession, um, you know, you don't necessarily want to uh, die with your boots on, so to speak. And then you look around the industry you know, there are consolidators gobbing up, um, you know, financial planning businesses, and you don't really like the prospect of um, handing over your client uh, to, 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 to these consolidators. Um, and because, well, you know, you'd have to move out of town, wouldn't you? Uh, can you look at those people in the face, uh, in the eyes after many years of preaching financial planning, um, you know, low cost investing maybe, and can you look at them in the eye when they get handed over to 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 consolidate or put them in expensive investment product things that you wouldn't have recommended for these clients and where financial planning might play back burner. And so you started to think about what succession might look like for you. Well, my guest today may well be the answer to your prayers. I am excited to have on the podcast today, Matt Marias, who is the founding director of Vatios Capital. Matt, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you very much, Abraham. Don't you today. just love my introduction? I have never introduced anyone as answer as the answer to financial financial advisors' prayers. So hey, you better live up to the the, the expectation, my friend. 
I was going to say, be careful setting the expectation too high. I don't want to disappoint anyone. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this. We've had conversations about this. Uh, so, look, Matt, let's, let's dive uh, straight in. Give our audience uh, a sense of, of your journey and how you uh, ended up setting up uh, Vatios Capital. Great, will do. Thanks, Abraham. So my background is in financial services. I studied finance in university. I spent some time for my sins in Accenture doing management consulting, at which point I realized that um, I didn't know nearly as much as I needed to know um, before I could consult. I then moved into um, basically deal-making in an intermediary environment, so with MGAs, insurance brokers, and wealth managers, and found that I really enjoyed it. It was very relational. It's the kind of um, combination of, of technical finance skills and relational skills that really take to, to do good deals and to build good partnerships. So I spent quite a while doing that. In the process of that, we started a life insurance business. And in that life insurance business, we were able to seed what became a new entrant in the South African market called Brightrock. As you can hear, I'm African. So all of this happened in South Africa. Um, the the Brightrock business was an interesting one because it was effectively starting a very small challenger brand in what was quite a saturated market of vertical integrated consolidated type, type wealth managers and life insurance companies in the South African market. So I got to understand the dynamics of consolidators, big corporates, small startups, etc. The head of sales in that business was, was a mad guy called, is a mad guy called Sean, who said to me, <laughs> you know, son, you'd be a good financial advisor. You should go and get your CFP. So I thought, well, why not? At that stage, I was newly married, no kids, had lots of time on my hands. And so off I went in a part-time role, studied my certified financial planning, and then went in to actually be an advisor for a phase of time. And I really enjoyed it. It was a great, um, a great experience for me. I was kind of getting the corporate experience on the, on the Brightrock side, but in the, in the, on the personal side, I was learning about financial advice and financial planning and, and doing it in a way where it was for qualified base. I wasn't just going in there trying to flog policies to the unsuspecting public. I was actually able to kind of build a proper technical foundation, which I'm very thankful for. That then got me, so we got to a point where Brightrock kind of became its own autonomous entity um, I was responsible for the investment and things. So it got to a point where I was no longer necessary in that phase. And so I moved into another business, which was using information on a data platform, so administrative platform, to facilitate deals between insurance brokers, MGAs, and um, IFAs. And so, what, and so I started to learn about how the data can help in kind of giving insights into what makes good deals and what makes bad deals. It was at that stage that I was approached by Transact, uh, um, the now CEO of Transact, Jonathan Gumby, who wasn't the CEO at the time, but was looking for a solution to help their users in the UK market and wasn't invited over to the UK to set up what is now Virtus. So Transact were very much, they kind of rolled out a red carpet, but because of all the inducement rules and all the regulations around, and Transact's very staunch view on we maintain independence. We don't want to be involved in any other service provision to IFAs that could compromise their decision to use our platform. You know, the, the inducement stuff's pretty clear. And it's very clearly part of their strategy. So they invited me over. They said, look, we can't do much for you here, but give you access to some brand, the market. We can give you an exclusivity so you can work very much with our business. And we will work 
to provide to kind of broker like-minded deals and if you as the as the virtus business can help with the financing that would be great so i moved over with my six-week-old child my four-year-old my wife we didn't ship our goods at that stage because we didn't have money to get going and we took a chance and we came here and it's been a fabulous six-year journey for us you know we we kind of started knocking on doors to raise capital were it not for the transact brand and support at that stage would have been difficult we found a seed investor who was a high net worth individual um, working at deutsche bank at the time who really liked the idea and thought it had legs and could make a meaningful impact so that then started our capital raising journey. We subsequently managed to secure investment from uh, Trufin, an aim-listed business, which enabled us really what we needed to do was to secure a high street bank, in this case, NatWest, as our senior funders. So that kind of helped us. That, took, that was an 18-month journey of really realizing, actually, was this thing going to have legs? But what it did allow us is a proper institutional balance sheet and a proper market-facing player in being transact to help us start to build and really what we were trying to do was to enable the segments of the market that a lot of whom are transact users but there's lots that use other platforms as well but certainly transact is like the poster child for that base of proper qualified financial planners who are independently minded they don't want vertical integration they don't want corporate consolidation they're kind of fierce entrepreneurs it allowed us access to the right kind of base that we needed to do what we were doing, which was to give them an alternative succession plan that didn't involve selling to, you know, I won't mention names, but the ones that we know, some of whom are listed, some of whom aren't, but the, the kind of the mass consolidation engines that we see today, some of whom have been very successful and we can talk separately about their kind of valued role in the market because I think they do have a place. But there, there was a strong segment of the market that was saying, we'd like an exit. We don't want that exit to be a sale to a consolidator, but we're stuck because there's no one to help us provide capital to our succession plan, which the obvious one is our team in the form of an MBO. There's, and, and there's no other way for me to exit other than to just hang on for dear life, collect my fees until I die and leave my clients in the lurch. And so it left lots of planners in this really tricky space. And you talk about 50s. I mean, 50s is like a spring chicken. In this market, you know, we, we're talking 70s here for a lot of the, a lot of the players, and it's a conundrum I can really sympathise with because for them it's a very difficult balance to walk. They want to do right by clients. They don't want to leave town. They don't want to like have a private room in the pub after they've sold the business in case they meet one of their clients. But they also feel some entitlement, rightly, to the fact that they've built a lifelong asset, and that asset's worth something, and they should be able to realise some value. They shouldn't be able to realise enormous usurious value at the expense of their clients but they should be able to realize a, a real commercial value and so what we were able to do was to largely on the vision of transact actually or jonathan and, and ian taylor at the time to see to set up something that could could be that difference and so it was hard work um, it's been lots of fun but i feel like we've really been able to make a meaningful difference in doing that and and it's not partic it's not rocket science what we do. We we basically look to off the strength of transacts matchmaking, and we've now gone to a, a whole of market audience to find deals between firms that are like minded. So there's this element of autonomy, entrepreneurial spirit, high customer focus, um, proper financial planning. So not just kind of product pushing, um, and and firms that are that what that that have a like-minded view between that, but maybe have twenty or thirty years between the the age gaps of the principles. 
and for us to be able to come and provide liquidity to enable that transition to happen. There's been lots of the market that that have gone the consolidator route anyway. I mean, when we arrived, we are kind of pushing back against the tide. But but we feel that certainly in the number of deals we, we have been able to do, it's made a meaningful difference. And it's that's kind of cascaded throughout the market in other areas that we see benefit today. So that's a bit of a long response, but that's how we how we got to where we are. So this is crazy, right? You know, that just an incredible journey, right? That, you know, six years ago, Transact realized that their clients had a problem, right? Uh, and of, of, of succession and not wanting to sell to, to consolidators. And by definition, maybe Transact had a problem, right? Because if they do, did sell to consolidator, the, the, the assets the, the assets going to leave Transact platform. But then they said, we want you to solve the problem. Uh, you know, a young man in South Africa, bring you over to ask you over to come to the UK, operate your, uproot your family and move over to the UK. I mean, UK, South Africa, depends where you are. Depends where you are in South Africa. If it's Cape Town, maybe not. But I, I don't know the other parts of South Africa. My point is, maybe that wasn't a, such a hard decision. But then they gave you no capital. You had to source the capital. Talk to me about the, the capital raising, the, the mix of you know, equity and debt that goes into funding this. And, and indeed, part of the, tell the story around the entrepreneurial journey of uprooting your family and, and moving over to the UK. Sure. So, so in hindsight, it was a bit mad. <laughs> and at the time, you don't realize exactly what a journey you're going through. No, you're sitting in, at the time, Johannesburg, we then moved to Cape Town for a year while I kind of commuted. But you think, oh, this will be fun. You know, what could go wrong? And, uh, and then you fast forward 12 months, the commuting doesn't work. We've got initial seed capital, but we don't have the capital we need to really get going. So we do our first wow. deal to kind of see if it works. That then gets to a series of conversations with, with eventually James Vandenberg, who runs Trufin, who said, this looks like a really good business. It's in line with our strategy. And so we'd love to invest, but purely verbal at that stage. But really on the strength of that handshake, I thought, I said to my wife, look, we can't do this from here. Let's, let's go. So we got on a plane. We didn't ship any of our stuff. So we had some friends here who own a boat in Weybridge. And they said, well, you, you've got kids, you know, you need like mattresses and stuff. So they brought their boat, you know, cutlery, glasses, mattresses up. And we, we found a, a little place to rent and we threw all our stuff on the floor. And in fact, the first piece of UK furniture we got was a cat because my daughter had moved country and promised us that if we got her a cat, she'd be happy. And so, so it started off, you know, with like what was, what was at the time a very stressful, but in hindsight, quite a, um, a, a good developmental experience for us and our family. But, but it was really on the strength of those conversations, finding the right partners have been so important to us. So both our shareholders, the high net worth individual and um, Trufin have been incredibly supportive, patient, allowed us to go. And, you know, life happens. You start with one conversation. That doesn't work. You go to the next. You, you know, you find what looks to be a perfect partner when you get down the road starts to become a challenge. That process took us 18 months and you're trying to do that concurrently with trying to line up deals. And this is always the challenge. It's why I do sympathize with people that launch new funds or new hedge funds is that you, you're trying to coordinate two herds of cats 
on the one it's capital and on the other it's deals and you kind of need them to come together at the same point in time and so that initial startup phase was quite challenging for us in the uk market what we were doing was fairly new there was no one specializing in providing capital especially not debt capital to ifas to facilitate um, succession plans the stories that there were of firms who had tried it in the past had not ended well and so we had to be quite careful and conservative about the kind of deals we did um, how we underwrote those deals, which is why we were transact was very helpful for us because what you get when you when you do these deals with a platform, an institutional platform partner, and now multiple, is you can see incredible, insightful data on a firm. You can see if it's a proper financial planning firm. You can see track record histories, wrapper accumulation, deaccumulation, client age, products, fees. You know, there's just so much you can see that's really helpful. And so we had to be quite careful in learning how to do that. At that stage, we were kind of making it up as we went along until NatWest came on board. And that's where NatWest, whilst taking on a, a major bank, can be a very difficult thing to do because it takes a year plus, costs a lot of money. But it's very helpful because what NatWest forced us to do is to be very specific about what was in our frame of reference. So these are the kind of things you do and the rest you don't do. And that was helpful because as an entrepreneur, you know, I look for, I look to provide capital support to the right people. And where there's problems with the numbers, we try and work those out. Whereas actually, sometimes you need both. You need the right people and you need to provide quite a kind of a set level of parameters that make a deal eligible. And so that was a, that was a, a good learning process for us. It also set us on a path of really walking a, a close journey with our clients. We don't see our clients like a typical creditor uh, debtor relationship. We see them as we see ourselves as capital partners. And so in doing so, we involve ourselves far beyond just, you know, here's a here's some cash, there's a list of covenants, listen to obey them, otherwise we're gonna pull the rug out from under you. That's not how we think at all. We see ourselves as growth partners to a lot of our clients, which is why for most of them, they've come back for multiple deals. So so a lot of our clients have become firms that are regional, um, owner managed proper financial planning firms of like great quality they don't lose clients in deals and before they do deals so you know internally or externally and they they are looking for like-minded sellers in the market and that will often be a growth journey that's more than one deal so they might come for an initial you know we want to buy out a partner or we want to facilitate an mbo but once they've done that they realize geez you guys can actually help us with our growth journey what else could you do and it'll, you know, maybe that will translate into a, a small book acquisition, which then becomes a, a larger, you know, IFA share acquisition and then becomes multiple acquisitions. And so it's really given us a, it's, that's been the most fulfilling journey for me is, is I kind of act somewhere between a creditor and a life coach and a, I wouldn't say a financial planner is too detail a word, but, but a partner to, IFA, to own a manager IFA entrepreneurs in the market. And it's been really fulfilling to see because most of the, the clients we've dealt with over the five years, their businesses have transformed significantly, some of which is thanks to the capital that we've provided, and a lot of which is thanks to their hard work, vision, finding the right deals, etc. It's, it's incredible. So let, let's, be, let, let's break this down a little bit further. So you are giving uh, you know, debt capital to IFAs or financial advisors who either are going through an internal succession, so uh, some sort of MBO where the current you know, owners are selling to the next generation or even selling to themselves 
if there's age difference between them, or where one um, one uh, firm is selling to another similar, you know, like-minded firm. Is, is that it? Th those are the two core areas. Is there is there other thing to to, to it? Is there any other angle to so, it before we dive into into those scenarios? So we describe it as anything where there is the underlying causa of the deal is a succession transition. We'll support. Right. We'll we'll have a look at how that practically works. Is pretty much as you've described. So a lot of it's mm. either internal. So it may it may not be age. Sometimes it's just people of different life stages or life events happen or health issues or you know there's a million different reasons why why. But but as long as underpinning that is a steady continuous business with like a good strong track record in independent financial planning, we can see that in the data. Then we'll and, and there's a clear picture of who's going to actually be the custodian of this in the future, and do they have experience? If we see that, we'll support a deal. And so a lot of our deals, I mean, almost forty percent of our book is MBOs or, or internal right. transitions, and then the rest will be will be either tactical or strategic growth. So tactical is, you know, Bob wants to retire. He knows Sally down the road. It's a one-off deal. Sally doesn't really want to do it, you know, not specifically mm. looking, but she knows Bob. She knows he's got a good business. It's all on the same platform. So they come to us. They say, look, we need a million quid. We need some help because we're not like Sally's never done this before. So can you help us with that? So we will we'll do more than just provide capital. We'll steer them to the right advisors. We can, we can vet the valuation, the commercials. And we do that for both parties. So so Bob also gets a sense of knowing, okay, at least it's a fair deal because these guys have seen what's out there and it's reasonable. Because if it's not a fair deal, somewhere down the line, someone's going to be aggrieved. And if someone's aggrieved, especially if it's legitimately aggrieved, there's going to be issues with, you know, poaching of clients or, or it just doesn't end well. And so we'll do quite a bit of work in that. So that's a tactical acquisition. Strategic are firms that are actively scalable they've they've positioned themselves they've done the pre-work they work with advisors like you know rob at kingmakers is fantastic at that getting a firm that goes from an individual who's like i'm really good at advice i know i do this well i've got 100 million how do i take the next level do i just keep keep hiring and actually no the answer is there are some specific things you can do to to scale up and you want to do those things and prepare for those things before you go to avertus for a strategic acquisition facility. And so those look slightly differently. Sometimes it'll just be understanding that they want to do two or three acquisitions in the next three years, and we just do them one by one. So it looks fairly similar to a tactical acquisition where they come and they say, we've got this firm. Often they've been matched by someone. And it's, it's often, sometimes, often it's the brokers, but sometimes it's not brokers. Sometimes it's like transacts matchmaking service or dimensional sales team putting, you know, like-minded players together. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the corporate players in the market have a good strategic rationale to do that. So they don't lose clients who sell to SJP. So, so the strategic looks slightly differently different in that we have a, a bigger concern about the scalability and the strategy of the firm and who's going to run it and lead it. But what they will typically do is take either a single acquisition facility or they might come and say, we want to go on a acquisition trail. We want to buy three businesses and we'd like security around capital now. And so we will give them a larger facility that they can tap into as and when they find the right deal, rather than when they find a deal, have to come and start from scratch with us, if that makes sense. So those are more so the, regional IFAs with a 
with a growth slant that see the opportunity, but they can't compete with the consolidators unless they have access to capital. And so we like to bring that to them. So th this, is, this is fascinating. And I want you to take us through a, a, a sort of um, hypothetic uh, type case study, how this might look, what this might look like in the real world. So here's Sally, right? Sally uh, is a 60-something-year-old lady. She's built an incredible practice, uh, 100 million of assets. We're going to assume that she gets paid 1% on all of them, right? right? Just to keep the maths easy, people, right? A million pounds revenue. Sally has uh, three staff members. She's recently taken on, not recently, but she's taken on another financial planner. Let's call him Mike. Mike is 40, he's driven, he loves the profession, he's chartered, certified, all that. He wants to take the business to the next level. Sally's had enough. <laughs> she wants to uh, sail off to the sunset. Um, and then, of course, they have their, their admin staff and you know, support team. So talk to us about what a succession plan might look like in that scenario, A, in terms of valuation, um, how the deal might be structured in terms of how the payment uh, to, to Sally is going to be structured, uh, what does the interest rate looks like? I wouldn't want to see that in this environment, but you, 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 you have the numbers. What alarm bells will concern you about this deal? What will give you comfort um, about this deal? Uh, over to you. Okay, great. Cool. That's a good... My only concern with your scenario is it's normally the other way around. The it's other way around. Yeah, Sally yeah. by like, Mike. I... <laughs> Mike 73. He needs to sell <laughs> Sally's buying. So quite a few of our deals have been female-led deals, and I love those. And I mean, I think... I think women make finan fantastic financial planners because they bring that mm. EQ and the technical skill. And they have generally just that little more, little less hubris than a lot of the male entrepreneurs have. Oh, gosh, so, you're getting into assume... trouble, Matt. You're, you're, no, no, I know, you're, I you're careful, winding yeah. our audience yeah. up. <laughs> I know. But we, we've, done, we've done very successful woman-led buyouts where, where Sally's buying, not selling. But I'll try and stick to the Sally is the seller if I get confused. You stop me. Yeah. So, so the reality with these deals, we've done a few of these and we've published an MBO guide that goes into quite a bit of detail on this because I think it's an enormous opportunity for the sector that's not being explored. Why is it not being explored? Capital is one reason, but capital is less of an excuse now that we're around. It's planning, planning, planning. It takes years mm. to do this properly. Mm. Why mm. does it take mm. years? Let's assume Sally's business is worth $4 million to a consolidator but then, you know, Sally knows what's on the other side mm. or 3 million to Mike. Okay. I like that. I like the way you frame that, by the way. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. So, so when Sally goes to a broker and says, I'd like to explore sale options, which if she's sensible, she'll do because before she just goes to Mike, she wants to know what's out there. The broker will go and bring three players who say it's worth 5 million. Okay. Now, realistically, mm. she's probably not going to get five. They'll tell her five. So that can sometimes anchor Sally and think, oh, I've got five million quid. And she's immediately like house shopping in the south of Spain, which is not always the mm. best way to spend <laughs> it at that stage. And so for, 
for Sally, it's a, it's about a lot of our work is with Sally explaining to how it looks that consolidators on sharks. They are, they are legitimate, great business models. They're run by wonderful people in many instances, but the process of selling a business is different to what Sally understands. It's not her day job. And so Sally's not aware that when someone says five, they're pricing a, per- a perfect price, assuming mm. the, the age stage of the clients is perfect, mm. the makeup mm. of the, the staff efficiency, the margin, the client provider, etc., is all perfectly structured. And it also mm. assumes, beside of that, that there's some product benefits that you can bring from bringing internally driven funds. There's platform. It's vertical integration. Mm, and mm. so, but Sally, no, if Sally really stared at the 5 million pound price and the implication, she wouldn't want it. So she'd never anchor in it, but she might look at four and four is probably where it would end up once, you know, due diligence had been done and there was negotiation and come back and, oh, this isn't exactly how we thought. And clients are a bit older or they're in deaccumulation or there's too much offshore bonds or whatever. Um, the reality is that somewhere between three and four is Sally's kind of happy ending. And I think what, so, so, what, so what Sally will then do is go and have a, have a conversation with Mike to say, listen, Mike, you know, I'm looking at these things and why it would be, it would be just so, so much better if we could do a deal together. But the problem is Mike owns zero. Sally mm. owns a hundred. I'm assuming that in your scenario, because mm. this is often yes, what we yes. see. And Sally, if Sally wants out in the next three years, the reality is there's very little option she has to get Mike in because it's too short mm. a time. Why is that? Mm. Because Mike's got to come up with three to four million quid. Mm. He's got a million quid in revenue making, I don't know, 300 grand in profit. The yeah. numbers don't add up. How does he write that check to Sally? So Sally then has mm. to say, well, actually, Mike, I need to gift you little bits over time. So she's got to take a long time to pass the business that affects her, her entrepreneur's relief or business asset disposal relief. It's got lots of knock on implications for Sally that make it difficult because she's not going to really empower Mike until he owns 60, 70% of the business. Cause she's got a whole life and life savings in that business. Mm. She doesn't have the house in Spain yet. Cause she, in most instances, hasn't done a huge amount to, to save personally financial advisors often I'll be pragmatic and say they're not particularly strong at, at executing their own advice um, in you their own life. I, I can say it. Yeah. They'll hate me. Let, yeah. no, no, no. So, financial planners. Is this the case of the cobblers? Uh, cobblers. Yes. Uh, cobblers. No, children's like, shoes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah. right. It's that. And so often that, that puts pressure on the, on the, on Sally when she comes to retirement because she hasn't left it early. So let's look at an ideal scenario. Let's assume Sally is early 60s and has some time and is proactive about managing it. Or maybe she thought she could do it in two years. When she looks, when she talks to me, she's going to realize it's a six-year journey. What does Sally do? Okay, there's two steps to every deal. Firstly, she's got to get Mike on the share register. This is like the step one mentorship step. She's got to identify Mike as the person that's going to take over the business. And she's got to get him somewhere between 25 and 49% of the shares in the business. Okay. Now she could do that through a management grant. She could do it through like a management incentive plan where Mike gets a certain amount of shares every, every month or year or whatever for a period of time or at combination. She might say, listen, Mike, you've been a, a loyal um, manager in this business advisor for 15 years or 10 years since your first job or whatever. I want you to be in here. Here's 10% as a gift. If you stick around through this process, but you need to go talk to Matt about buying another X percent. 
And so mm. Mike will come to us, or typically Sally will come to us, we'll send her back to the drawing board, and then she'll come back with Mike. And Sally will say, I want Mike to buy 25%. Now, Sally has to be pragmatic about the value of that. It's probably closer to 3 million, not 4 million. It's still a commercial value. I mean, three is still three times revenue. It's probably, you know, eight to 10 times profit. It's like a good, yeah. it's not a, you know, maybe six to nine times, but it's, it's a commercial, it's not a gift. Mm. We, will then we will then support a loan to Mike through a holding company that buys shares from Sally, but only 25%. Now, why do we right. do that? Because our exposure is still only 25% of the value of the business. So we know we're good. We know Sally's not going yet. So there's no like major eruption, dis a disruption to the business. But, and we know that Mike's going to be super focused because he now sees the opportunity to build an amazing career asset. When we do that, we actually will charge Sally's business. So Sally's kind of underwriting that loan. But it's helpful right. because it know, we know that what Sally's got the money in the bank and we know that Sally's got a, a real incentive to get this done. So at the end of that deal, Mike now sits with, call it 35, 40% of the business. Okay? And he's taken a million quid from us and, and paid it to Sally. And he's got a loan that's being repaid. They then start the real nitty gritty of like Mike now sits on the board. He's a senior manager. If he wasn't already, he's probably CF30 as well. You know, he's got all, he, he, if he hasn't, he's now going through that last process. But not just that, Sally's now putting Mike on the board and saying, you're dealing with budgets and payroll and accounts and, you know, you're getting your dividend on this, which will probably be set off against a loan for a while. Right. But Mike's right. real education starts now about this. Is, <laughs> and, and, and sometimes this fails because what will happen is Mike gets to four o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday and he says, I'm going home. And Sally's like, we've got three client files. We've got to do payroll. You know, you're going on leave tomorrow. You can't leave this stuff behind. And for Mike, it's a bit of an adjustment because there is a difference between employment and, and management and entrepreneurial management. You know, you talk to entrepreneurs, they don't rest. I, I haven't had copious amounts of unencumbered leave in the last six years. Let's put it that way. But, you know, we suck as for punishment. Once you're in it, you love it. and It's a, it's a, it's a joy and you, 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 you suffer joyfully. But Mike's got to learn those lessons. So, so, you know, that process happens over the phase one, which is where Mike pays down the loan. Mike's fully committed because he's now, because Sally's got two, you know, people now, the business can often benefit from that. And what you'll see naturally, as well as, you know, if Mike's the right guy, supported by Mike, you'll see the business continue to grow. So it goes from the 1 million now, or 100 million assets, to in three or four or five years' time when they're ready to do step two, it's now 200 million, okay? And Mike's been crucial to help that, but Sally's still got 60% of the value here. So Sally's actually done very well out of this transaction, even though you could argue she sold on a slightly low end of the range early on. Mm, mm. When it gets, gets to that step two, again, Mike's now paid down a lot of his deal with Virtus. He wants to go and, and buy the rest. Our loan is not 100% of the value. It's only 60 because now it goes from, we funded 40 or 30, she gave 40. We're now funding 60. It's a manageable risk for us. We also know Mike's been managing the clients for five years. Sally's, you know, been you know, knocking all the rough edges off Mike for the last five years, and they're ready to manage the next step of the transition. We would then bring funding to that stage. So the, the and, step and two will the this, business be revalued in step two? Would there be a revaluation yes. or is still right, absolutely? Right, okay. Yeah. So right. so at that stage, there's 200 million under under management. There's two million of revenue, and there's six million pounds of enterprise value. 
And Sally hasn't had to do this all on her own if she's done a good job. Some advisors are control freaks and, and that's where the coaching comes in is saying like you've got to empower, back off. If this person doesn't show their worth on the 25, 35, 40%, they're not going to do it when it comes to the majority. So, so you know, the, the, the heat's on for the IFA at that stage because I tell them if you get this wrong, what will happen is it'll all unwind. You'll fire Mike in four years' time. You'll, he'll give the shares back because no one else is buying them in exchange for kind of waiving any, any like issues with the loan. And you'll end up having 100% of your business, but now you're five years older. Yes, you've got a bigger business, but you're back where you started. So think carefully about who that person is that you pick and make sure you really sow time, effort, energy. This is a mentorship journey. It's a relationship. This is not a go and study your CFP and come back and you'll, I'll promote you. Every, everyone who's run a business knows that trains, they, these are skills that are taught and mentored and trained. They're not skills that are picked up in a formal institution. And so that, that kind of journey and relationship is really important. And it can't be expedited. You can't hustle someone up the ladder in six months and suddenly you rush off. We won't fund that. It may have happened successfully in the past, but it introduces additional risk to the system. Not least of which is, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Miggins now see a 35-year-old who doesn't know what he's doing, where they had Sally, who was 30 years in the industry, knew exactly what she was doing. There's attrition risk. And so we, you know, part of the steadiness of this is what makes it a successful deal. So, so, so that, that's that, a heck of a long kind of range that I talk about mm, there. But the mm. reality is firms that have been smart and thought ahead, regardless of whether they want to do an MBR or an external sale, will have some participation from key management that, that they make a part of their philosophy and they do it from day one. So when they come see us, it's not like I have to send them away to go and do step one. They've already done step one. By accident's the wrong word, but because it's the right thing to do. So when they come see us, I can say, okay, great. So, so Mike, you, Mike's a 35% shareholder. Great. Now we can talk about a meaningful transition in less than five years. But if you come to me at stage zero, I'm afraid you're in for a five, six-year journey. Right. That's, I like the way you frame that, actually, that, that if, you know, you know the, the successor, let's put it that way, is not, already, is not uh, already on the cap table and in management, the journey is longer. It's a, you know, a six-year yeah. journey. If yeah. they are already um, sort of they're taking the step one, they're already a shareholder, they're already in, in management, then maybe it's a three, three four-year mm -hmm. journey. Yeah. And exactly. if... if um, a business, let's think of a bigger business, you know, say, you know, 200, 300, 300 million of, of AU, sorry, 300 million of AUM, 3 million revenue. Um, if they are buying a smaller business, um, sort of an external purchase, um, I assume it will be slightly different and slightly shorter because they are going to essentially be handing over money to uh you know this advisor let's call him james he's selling let's say half a million pounds uh revenue and, and 50 million book um and and a bigger business is buying him that might be a three-year sort of installment and end out am i am i right those are or, much or simpler deals much right, simpler okay. deals because effectively that's what makes MBOs so tricky. It's taken us a lot of time to really focus in how we do this in a steady environment using debt because MBOs, you've only got one farm. 
in that business, you've got you've got the core business with 300 million funds on it, right? And typically, the bigger buys, the smaller. We've done the opposite, mm. but it's a lot more mm. like, you know, focus. There's more risk. <laughs> but if yeah. you've got a steady business with a million pounds of EBIT, looking at buying a business with three or 400 grand worth of EBIT, we underwrite the whole lot. So it's much easier to do that. Because remember, we're not, we don't have a farm. The, the challenge with what we do is, you know, if you're a bank, and this is why I think banks didn't don't really like the sector is the balance sheets of IFAs is thin. It's basically regulatory capital adequacy, maybe mm, some extra mm, for a conservative mm. owner. And so banks want to see a farm that they can literally attach a charge to. And if something goes wrong here, they just pull that rug. We're saying, actually, we only depend on the cash flow. In essence, we depend on the relationship with that firm and its clients and their ability to pay those fees going forward. So if we've got a bigger business buying a smaller business, and that's in reality, that's what we set up to set out to achieve. MBOs wasn't a key part of our strategy because we thought it was difficult. But it's as we've done a few and seen how steady and you know stable that these can be, and what a difference it can make to the industry. Is you know it, ultimately, if firms are all selling into a consolidation vehicle, you're going to get this natural moving up the pyramid to like fewer larger firms. I think there will continuously be a demand from the public for smaller, locally owned, high-touch financial planning, kind of planning-led businesses, not product-led businesses. And so if this consolidation carries on forever, well, there's a gap here that someone can profit from. MBOs are a great way to keep that kind of perpetual succession in place. But firm owners have to, be, have to look sharp. They have to plan ahead for stuff like that. So when we started, it was much more... There's a whole lot of these businesses looking to sell. Let's help them not have to only talk to consolidators for sale. Let's give them the option of talking to a local business. And that was, I mean, those deals are much easier. They're much quicker. They're easier to underwrite. But MBOs, we've been successful at MBOs, and I'd like to continue it. We're working a lot with NextGen because I'd love to see more NextGen users, NextGen advisors come, come up and say, we'd actually like to be, you know, we'd like to be, We'd like to put our hands up with our firm owners to go and do that. But that's a six-year journey. So we have to get our word out now. I'm, uh, I'm very strategic. You see, I'm laying the groundwork for 2028 sales. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, actually. <laughs> I had to think about, about that. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I just think, like, if I wasn't doing this, right, what, what we're doing with time now, you know, and I was, even the current, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm going to be 41 soon. And I just see this as just an incredible opportunity as a younger person, right? Relative, right? You know, but if you're in, if you're in your 30s today, hmm. why wouldn't you want to do this? What is the, oh. you know, and you're in financial planning and you want, why, why wouldn't you want to do this? Why wouldn't you want to find uh, an older, you know, financial planner that you hit it, you know, you get along with, uh, and you you know, obviously, uh, you don't want a scenario where you you kill each other, right? <laughs> so you you get along with 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 the plan of being somebody's succession plan. I mean, are you seeing a lot of this out there, or are, are they falling through? Are they working out? What's your sense of this idea of uh, the next gen? Uh, you know, is is this on their radar at all? So firstly, I was very concerned you were going to say, if I wasn't doing this, I'd want to be doing what I'm doing in Virtus. And I was <laughs> going to strongly discourage you there because uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky game. 
Um, I, but I, I agree with you absolutely that if I wasn't doing this, I would want to be in a firm working with clients every day, building my own practice without a question. And I sometimes get very tempted by looking at that. But I think what I've realized is by what we're doing here, every firm that we are enabled to like continue practicing as an independent, like owner-managed IFA has under it a hundred clients who we can, we can have an indirect impact on their outcomes over their life. And certainly the fees they pay compared to if it was sold to St. James's place. And so you know, there's, I feel like there's a feel good factor in what I do, but I, I agree. I think there's enormous opportunity for youngsters who, and the, the, the good thing about today's, today's generation, I think everyone talks about, you know, God help us. They don't have any EQ. And, and yes, maybe there are some lessons there, but they are technical. And if you go to pre RDR, the issue was it was all personality, no technical. People were just mm. selling products that they could sell because they had a sparkly personality, you know, in the pub. And financial planning's come a long way since then. And I think that the requirements now on financial planners to really be technical is intimidating a lot of the 75-year-olds, which maybe in the long run is not the worst thing. I do think there's a large um, chunk of younger generation that are starting to come up and they're getting great technical expertise. The challenge for them is learning and practicing the EQ bit and the entrepreneurial bit, the business management stuff which is why this kind of mentorship from principles is going to be such an important facet in really like enabling this transition to take place because there's going to need to be either a huge amount of consolidation, which I think we have too much of already, or a lot of this mentorship to really enable, which is why I love what next gen are doing because, you know, the, the only way to do this is to, is to get stuck in and do it, you know, and you'll learn lessons along the way. I want to start to wrap this up. There's still a lot I want to ask you, but you you've kind of alluded to it uh, earlier in your in, in your in the, in that scenario that we walked through. But it, you know, just beyond that, you know, if you it, as a as a firm owner looking to sell, what should you be expecting in terms of valuation uh, out there right now? What what's what's going on? So I think there's there's a few outcomes you should be looking for, or you should be alert to as a firm owner. And the first is what is going to happen to your business after sale? And what does that mean for you? Because that translates meaningfully to someone who owns a firm. This question of, you know, I'm going to sell and then I'm going to go do whatever I want doesn't work because a lot of the mm. sales here involve a, a, a responsible sale involves the involvement of the principal for at least a year or two after the fact. And I think if they flip it on its head and see there is actually an opportunity to, to define their perfect five years. If you ask most 74-year-old financial planners who've done it for 30 years and want out, they don't want to go and, you know, like their wife will tell them that I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch. You know, they, they're going to go <laughs> sit home. What are they going to do? And so for a lot of them, there is this sense of actually I'd love to be involved, but I don't want to be the only person who's doing it anymore. And so I flip it on its head and say, well, carve out that perfect five years and that will define what it's worth for you today to sell. Because I think what that often does is it clarifies Sally's issue of thinking it's worth five and then discovering actually it's probably worth three if you want to have an enjoyable life for the next five years um, and be proud of what you've done and enable the continuity of the firm. And so, so to get tangible, 
On the other side of that um, decision of sale is a consolidator, vertical integrator, corporate exit, where you out pretty quickly. It's integrated into a bigger engine. It, in many instances, means a very different kind of service. Sometimes I would say it's a worse service. Maybe sometimes it's not, but it's different. It's call center driven. It's multiple individuals. It's not relational. It's not personal in your home or in a local office, etc. And so for, for firms, so that's what's on the other side of a corporate sale. For corporate sales, arguably, there might be more value there for a principal. It won't be 5 million, but it also won't be three. It'll probably be somewhere around four. But yeah. you're out from day one. In the meantime, or for the first year, you're out within a year. For that year, you do what you're told by someone in a black suit who's 20 years younger than you and yeah. kind of wants to know where you are at 9 a.m. on a Monday. The impact on your clients is questionable at best but you don't have any control over it so you better hope they do the right thing they might not the service might be mm. terrible you've just seen a mm. powerpoint presentation you actually haven't been a client to that firm for mm. a year to know the impact on your staff is questionable but if you want to the perverse nature of the current market is you could probably unlock a slightly higher value it's not as high as they tell you but because that's part of the like fish and chip philosophy but it is probably slightly higher Equally, if you want to do a like-minded deal, that's either an internal deal or a deal to, you know, the Sally Mike example, or a deal to someone who's a similar firm down the road who's raised yeah. some capital. And it's not just Virtus doing capital in this market. There are more providers that have come in. So firms can access capital to go and do good, solid deals. Is If you're doing that, you're closer to three, a three to three and a half million in the example you've given. So whilst you might find, and I think the market's softening a bit, but you might find consolidators, vertical integrators are paying, you know, three and a half to four times revenue, sometimes even higher if you look at like true potentials. But, um, and I think in, light, in the like-minded environment, we're seeing three to three and a half. So it's not miles off. I certainly mm. think when you weigh it all up, it's much better mm. to do a like-minded mm. deal because those yeah, guys, yeah. typically when you do a like-minded deal, if you work in the firm for another three, four years and you're an ambassador and you're doing some new referrals and you're getting paid for a lot of that, if you add it all up, you're pretty much there or thereabouts, but you've had much more fun in that environment. So we, but we do encourage firms, don't just think about multiples of revenue. That's largely driven by vertical integration. If someone's talking in a multiple of revenue, it's because they know that there's product platform that they can mash in there to your clients. If that's a concern for you, be careful about that and start to discuss multiples of your profit. So what's this business worth? How much cash does it generate? Free cash flow every year when you step out of it, because that might bring you know quite a bit in and it's a gray zone for IFAs of how much they get paid and salaries and dividends and the like. But do the maths there and, and speak in multiples of profit. And in multiples of profit, there's a range. You know, we've done a lot of data work on this and anywhere between you know, five and 15 is the multiple, but it's all dependent on the size of the business, the growth, the sustainability, can it scale up? Is it a, but for smaller businesses, for smaller owners looking at sell, selling, you're probably looking at, you know, six to eight times your, your free cash flow in the business is what they should be thinking about. But you can sleep at night. F fascinating stuff, Matt. Thank you very much. Now, as a last question, uh, before we wrap this up, um, I have you, you painted this, and I think it's widely uh, accepted in the industry, this picture of two different paths, right? You sell to a corporate consolidator, um, 
and move out of town never you know because mm-hmm. you're never going to yeah. be able to look at those clients in the in the in the eyes again um or you do a deal uh you know sell internal sell mbo um uh, you know um sell to a like-minded firm even i will put um sort of we we didn't get to it you know things like you know employee uh, ownership trust in in that mm-hmm. pack mm-hmm. we're not getting into into that bit today but is there i've always thought is there something in the middle and so as a as a question on of uh, on what's next for you right as a as a business vatus you've done you've had 6 years of uh, good success doing this is there is there something in the middle for instance i've seen this model in the us where there is a corporate entity right a big maybe a fund maybe um you know a corporate uh, organ- a plc that owns let's say 30% or, you know 30 to 40% of the practice of the business and you have an independent uh, you have the the financial advisor own the control stake and they're going to sell that control stake to another advisor within the practice or within their, um, you know, within their, the, their community. But, but you always have a corporate entity either to support and fund growth or to fund the transition. Do you see that? Is, there, is that in your scheme somewhere of, of plans that you have in terms of where next you might take this beyond the debt um, capital that you've been providing to firms? So the short answer is yes. We have, you know, when I, I've always thought of Virtus as, as, a, as a capital partner to help firms with their succession planning and growth. And debt just happened to be the vehicle that we used to start it. And, and so when you think of what's the problem you're trying to solve, suddenly the, the means of solving it becomes less of an issue. So we've done yeah. debt, but I'm not a debt guy at heart. I think, I think much more in terms of long-term closer partnerships. And so we are actively engaging at the moment in ways that we can use equity partnerships to facilitate a similar thing. But what we're trying to do there is very difficult because a lot of the capital that comes to market here is focused on, it's like private equity driven integration. So it's either vertical integration or it's bringing lots of small businesses into a much more efficient operation, which mm. can work. And there's lots of firms doing it very successfully. And the press is filled of, with PE funds that have made lots of money doing it. But if it's to really work, it's got to be long term in the interests of what client outcomes is focused on. And so if you can do that, you need a long-term view. To find a long-term view, you take a very specific type of capital provider. So it's been a journey for us, but we are we think we're close to doing something that will that will fill that gap. I won't go into all the details now, but 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 what I would say is it needs to avoid it needs to deal with this element of control. As if you're dealing with mm. like entrepreneurial, you know, strongly entrepreneurial, independently minded financial planning businesses in the region. Yeah, well, you know, you said it, not me. Um, but they, you know, they they're wonderful if you enable them. And they torture us if you control them. And yeah. so, you know, for us, it's about finding, you've got to get this control thing right. You can't be in control. And secondly, you've got to really have a philosophy that independence matters and long-term independence is something you want to enable, almost in perpetuity. But mm. the third is you actually still have to give them access to 
resources that they can use to fight back against the larger corporates. You know, a firm yeah. like St. James's Place can spend tons of money on a really slick Salesforce-driven financial mm. planning tool. A regional mm. firm with a million pounds of revenue can't spend that. But maybe if you had access to 10 or 15, you had a federation of them, you could start to invest in some of that corporate infrastructure. The same for referrals, for tech, for product, etc. And so there's be, it's quite a lot to pull together, but we are optimistic and, and it is very much in our plans to extend what we're doing to possibly other product areas. Incredible stuff. Thank you very much, Matt Marias, for your wisdom, for uh, the work that you do, uh, for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Abram. Thanks for including me. It's been an honor. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together. Thank you, thank you very much guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline Retirement Planning Software and Pytech Low Cost Flat Fee Model Portfolio Manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you. I'm here to tell you all about Advisor 3.0 Change Agents. The must attend conference for financial planners is happening in London on 18th of May 2023. Sizzling keynote speakers include Baroness Karen Brady, CBE, and the legend that is Seth Golden plus Ola Abdul and Sean Hegarty. Co-hosted by Abraham Okasanya and Robin Wigglesworth, guests can enjoy an insightful interactive panels, debates, networking, Q&A sessions, and so, so much more. Grab them now at www.timeline.co forward slash advisor 3.0.